welcome to the NOLA Drink Show. Join us as we explore the world of drink, food, and culture in New Orleans and beyond. Here's your host, Brian Diaz. All right, everybody. Hey, thanks for joining me here on the NOLA Drink Show, friends. Brian Diaz here with you. Happy to have you with me. Hey, been a little bit longer break than anticipated. Sorry, had some family matters to attend to. So I thank you for your patience and uh, thanks for being here this time around. Got a really good show coming up for you this time. Uh, we're continuing our conversations with authors who are part of the wonderful cocktail book series put out by LSU Press called Iconic New Orleans Cocktails. This time around, we're chatting with author John Demers, who penned the book on the Vucare cocktail. John is a native of New Orleans who now resides in Virginia, but has long-standing roots in this part of the world. And John's actually a prolific writer. He's written nearly 60 books, both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, he's written numerous cookbooks. And uh, now the latest addition to his portfolio is this book on the Vucare cocktail. And like all the books in the series... It's just really well presented. It's a good read. It's super informative. It's not overly time consuming to read the book. Um, you know, uh, it talks about the history of the drink, of course, uh, the history connected to some of the people who are associated with the drink. Uh, in this case, the drink was invented by a bartender just after Prohibition named Walter Bergeron. And uh, it was invented, the drink itself was invented at the Hotel Monteleone. So we talk about Walter a little bit. Um, part of his story is a bit hazy. So we talk about what it is, is no, that's known. Uh, we talk about the Monteleone family uh, who obviously built the hotel, the famous hotel there in the French Quarter. Um, we talk about the fact that the drink was actually invented at the lobby bar because if you know the Hotel Monteleone, you might know it for the Carousel Bar, which is, of course, a world-famous spot. But the Carousel Bar did not exist at the time that Walter invented the drink. What we also do is we talk about how the drink is made and kind of talk about a fairly standard recipe for it. And we use the ingredients and their backstories to tell the story. And we sort of talk about how the sense of place uh and Walter's life most likely kind of brought all this together to create this iconic New Orleans cocktail. Great name for a series of books, right? Uh, I will reference this. If you go to our show notes for this particular episode, we've done two other shows featuring authors and books from this series. Uh, we chatted a while back with Sue Strachan, who wrote the wonderful book on the Cafe Brulo. And we most recently chatted with Mary Sanji, who wrote an also tremendous book on the Absinthe Frappe Cocktail. And like all of the books in the series, including John's that we're going to talk about here, it just, it connects the dots so well. So yeah, we talk, as I said, we talk about the drink and what the ingredients are and who invented it and so on and so forth, but it connects to New Orleans culture. It connects to New Orleans history uh, and actually history is beyond because these ingredients come from elsewhere. And it really is just such a, it's a great story. And like all of them are great stories. And like, we like great stories in New Orleans, right? And we like our cocktails to have great stories. And this is yet another one. One in the fine series of those, both the books and I guess the classic cocktails here in New Orleans, right? Uh, so really interesting conversation with John and we obviously touch on his background a bit and how he came to write the book. Uh, want to flag your attention to our next show that we taped a little while ago. Uh, my friend Sean Williams, who is a graduate of the Turning Tables program, been on the show once or twice before. Sean is a sake expert. So she joins us on the program and we are at the very fine Uptown on Oak Street Sushi Restaurant called Sukeban, which is owned by the chef and owner, Jackie Blanchard. And Jackie joins us as well. So we're going to take a deep dive into sake, talk about its uh, 
intrinsic connection to sushi. It's just really such an interesting topic. A lot of people think sake is a rice beer. Some say it's a rice wine. Neither is exactly accurate. They kind of share commonalities, but we let you know what sake sake, excuse me, is and is not. And again, we connect to the food, we connect it to the culture. It's just a really, really interesting conversation. And we're also going to be working on a show. We did this last year talking about Old Fashioned Week. And Old Fashioned Week is put on by Elijah Craig Whiskey, and it benefits the Southern Smoke Foundation. And the Southern Smoke Foundation is a very, very fine organization based out of Houston, Texas, that supports people in the hospitality industry in a couple different ways. Uh, so we're putting together a show to revisit that topic. Old Fashioned Week comes up in mid-October. The gist is, if you go to a participating bar, we'll have all that information. They have the list on their websites of bars near you all around the country, I think in Canada too, uh, where if you go buy an Old Fashioned, one of these places, they donate a dollar to the Southern Smoke Foundation. So just a really wonderful cause. They help people out all around this part of the world uh, in that industry when they are in need, both need if there's something connected to, to say, for example, natural disaster, uh, somebody loses a job, uh, health issues, and they also address the very important topic of mental health in the hospital industry. So we'll be working to bring you that one sometime before Old Fashioned Week. Got a fairly lengthy interview here coming up with John talking about the Vucre cocktail in his book. So we're going to get right to it. Come on. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Brian Diaz here with you. Thanks for joining me on the NOLA Drink Show, friends. Happy to have you here. Yeah, you know that, and happy to be bringing you my next guest, author John Demers, who has written the fine book, The Vu Carre, not necessarily about the neighborhood in New Orleans, but about the cocktail that relates to the neighborhood in New Orleans. We'll get to all that, but John, thank you for joining me on the show. Happy to have you here. Well, thank you, Brian. It's it's great to be here. It's great to join you and talk about this. Uh, I mean, it was a very exciting project. And as a lifelong writer, of course, I mean, one, we need projects. Uh, and then secondly, this was a really interesting one. Uh, the book itself is part of a series, and that's kind of how the beginnings of how it came to pass. We can talk some more about that, but, but the series created by LSU Press was Iconic New Orleans Cocktails. In fact, it is Iconic New Orleans Cocktails. Yeah, and you know, John, so, real quick, I'm going to start, because we actually, I, I will have touched on that at the top of the show. So, and we've done some other books uh, from the series mm-hmm. or talked to some other authors. So it's a really, really fine series that you're mentioning there and let me let me just because people are familiar if they listen to this show with the series itself how how did you find yourself into writing this particular book well uh you know the first book in the series was written by tim mcnally about what else the sazerac which if there is a kind of mothership mother load uh home base of cocktails in new orleans it is the sazerac uh, in one of my many lives, I even worked at the old Fairmont, now again, Roosevelt Hotel with the Sazerac Bar. So just as part of my job, I knew, you know, I had Sazeracs coming out of my ears, which was not <laughs> a bad, not a bad thing to have coming out. Right. Um, but uh, so Tim wrote that. And and then one day, uh, another writer, Sue Strachan, who was working on, I believe it was the second book in the series about Cafe Brulot. Yep. She had heard somewhere that I was an expert. This is how life works, right? She had heard somewhere that I was an expert on Cafe Brulot. 
And um, I had to sort of disappoint her by saying, well, I did write the original Arno's Creole cookbook in the mid 80s. So, yes, we had Cafe Brulot in the book, you know, which is coffee with lots of booze that set on fire at tableside. Right. right. Um, but honestly, Sue, I don't really have a lot of profound understanding of Cafe Brulot. But by the end of that conversation, she said, hey, John, you ought to do one of these. And I thought, OK, well, I it seemed like a good opportunity to do the kind of thing that I've mostly done with food, because what I get out of food and I do I did this as a native New Orleanian and then later over the years traveling to many, many countries and all that. I always think that food and therefore drinks slash cocktails are all about the story. They're all about the people. They're all about telling us, teaching us, really, a lesson in how cultures work. And the guy who created the Vucare was very much into that, how cultures worked in New Orleans. So essentially, I did what I've done, what probably most of us have done in our lives. I called up LSU Press and, you know, because I've gotten so uh, wise-assy about this, I basically (laughs) said, hey, what do I have to do to write one of these books? Um, yeah, I know how to write. Okay, sure. Um, and when I looked, they had a list of the books of the cocktails, technically, but the books they thought would be good in the series. And I looked over the list and kind of had my little phone Googling away. And, uh, you know, in that way that things work, I just found the Vucaray. I'd had a few, particularly at the Carousel Bar at the Monteleon. The, the the drink was created at the Monteleon. Um, and so that's where I'd had mine. Lucky me. Um, <laughs> I just and, and then there were people. There was a guy named Walter Bergeron, Bergeron who was a, a bartender. I'm sure the word mixologist never crossed his mind. Um, Walter Bergeron was, was in the story as the creator. Um, there was Antonio Monteleone from Contessa Intellina in Sicily, who became, he was the, the founder and the head and the sort of king, if you will, the noble, nobility of the Hotel Monteleon. Well, so John, and, and then, John, real quick, because I want to get sure. into to Walter and to the Monteleone mm-hmm. family and stuff in just a moment. But just sure. because I want to just kind of get back to how so you reached mm-hmm. out to LSU Press and then this part I didn't know about the series. So they have a list of, of cocktails and that are kind they of do. probably some of the usual suspects, I'm guessing, that we might call Very New much. Orleans classics. And so then you you gravitated because of the reasons you're giving me, you gravitated mm-hmm. towards the Vucare then. That's, yeah, that's it just it just seemed, you know, like there's a story I can tell. And and as you know, when you wake up every morning as a writer, you're always looking for the story you can tell. And and it turned out that, you know, all of the rest of my research more or less confirmed not that I'm genius, but it confirmed that the intuition that that this is a good yarn because all these cocktails are good cocktails. But I don't write cocktails. I write a yarn. And so, so the Vucare ended up being one of those. And, and I'm, you know, whether I ever do a, a different cocktail, I don't know if they even let people go back for seconds, but, um, but I definitely go back for seconds on Vucare cocktails. Um, <laughs> right. but, but for this one, I'm really proud of the book. It, you know, it, one of the things I like about the series, John, is that, you know, people might say, well, okay, it's a book on a cocktail. How, 
rich can it possibly be, right? I mean, we can maybe talk about the ingredients. We can talk about the history of the drink itself. But like you said, especially here in New Orleans, all of these drinks have a deeper connection to the culture. The ingredients have deep connections to where they come from, how all this comes together in a glass. And I think that your book and the series does a really nice job of, of digging deeper. And I mean, I'll just pull out an example. Mary Sanji, who is the other book that we didn't uh, touch on just yet, who wrote the book on uh, the absinthe frappe, uh, was recently mm-hmm. on the show. So her book is a vehicle to talk about the story of absinthe. Um, we all touch on prohibition with these. We'll get to that with you here in the Vucare. Mm-hmm. But I, you've done a very fine job, I think, capturing both the essence of the cocktail, the story, providing a lot of information. But it's also not necessarily something that I always say this is a great series for bartenders, John, because if you want to know the story of the drink, you can do this and you can read this book in two hours and or in my case, four, because I'm a little slow. But you've done a marvelous job of capturing this. And I think the series is really neat in how it's presented that way. I agree. And, 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 you know, some just from a sort of what do they call inside baseball sense? Right. Um, you know, some of those elements or the design or the concept is mine, but then really the series is, is God in a way too. That, that, you know, when we, when we had our chat and we've in LSU press and I had more than one chat about the book, it was very clear that they wanted the story. They obviously wanted the recipe for a classic version and maybe a few recipes for a more, I don't know, weird, innovative, not so classic, non-traditional. Um, they wanted a definite look at the, the meaning and purpose and history of the, the main ingredients, which I, you mentioned that I found that fascinating and that, you know, you know, a little bit about almost everything in the journalism world, but you don't necessarily know enough about anything. So, (laughs) so it really was great to dive in and say, okay, Benedictine, you know, there, there you have it. So it was great fun. Uh, some people think of research as being like the boring price or the penance you have to do to actually write something, but you have to research it. Well, the research was every bit as much fun as the writing in this book because the stories and the information, and in some cases, the I won't say disagreeing or contradicting information, but you know, this is New Orleans we're talking about where, you know, we're the imp- Emperor Napoleon used to live at the Napoleon house or something. I mean, <laughs> right. And, we, and, and we where, where, where for, Jean Lafitte was or where Jean Lafitte was not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, 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 we're not known for sticking to the facts, ma'am. But well, we do we, in this book. And I'm not, I'm not joking or backing, backtracking on that. I mean, obviously a book like this has to stick to the facts, but when there are, multiple versions the fun writer gets to sort of say but on the other hand yeah look, <laughs> and i mean and that's you do a great job in the book of pointing out where the vagaries are and mm-hmm. you know and, you. And, and making some logical suppositions of course but you're very clear on where those are suppositions and and are and are you know versus actual fact and this is a really good jumping off point because let, let's go ahead and talk about uh the creator of the drink because there is some amount of, of mystery i mean he's just like unlike some bartenders and and other drink inventors in history. We maybe know a lot about them. In the case of Walter Bergeron, we don't know a lot. I'm going to ask you two. We ask hard-hitting questions here on the NOLA Drink Show, John. I'm going to ask you two. I'm going to ask you two during the course of the interview. The first one is now, especially since you are a New Orleans native, Bergeron or Bajeron? 
Well, I say Bergeron. Okay. I've certainly heard. <laughs> I've certainly heard Bergeron. Um, you know. Okay, that was hard hitting uh, question number one. We can move on from that one. This is one there of those. Are no Bergerac? I mean, come on. <laughs> but t- tell us a little bit about uh, about what what we what we do know about Walter uh, and his time frame, and uh, just you know, kind of how he found his way. At least what we know about coming up with the Vucure. And then we'll get into oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we need to underline and stress and put a spotlight on the fact that we know crazy little about Walter Bergeron. Um, there have been a few efforts, not only my own, but before me, a couple of other history minded cocktail researchers. I mean, even far back enough to try to find it to find family members like grandkids or whatever. And, and to my astonishment, when, and those people are now passed away. So it, it wasn't like I didn't find them. I found them all right. They were buried somewhere. Not, not moving. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But, but when some of these other researchers found like a son of, of Walter Bergeron, um, the son says nobody in the family knew that Walter, because I'm wearing first name bases now, <laughs> that Walter had created this cocktail, the Vucare, at the Monteleon. They knew, of course, he had worked at the Monteleon. There are a couple of stories about, you know, sort of like we, I'm sure they didn't have take your son to work day officially in those days. But, um, but that said, you know, his family didn't know. He was, Walter, was apparently a nice guy who went to work every day, um, didn't make much different, didn't make a big deal out of going to work. Um, he probably made a lot of Sazeracs, you know, and mm-hmm. what's in, the second important thing is that to, I mean, there's a bunch, but other than we don't know much about Walter, but, but he, he did not work at the carousel bar. You know, it's so easy to kind of shove those conflate, but to shove those stories together and think, oh, when I go to the Montleon Hotel on Royal Street, I'm going to have a Vucare cocktail in in the, the ter- slowly turning carousel bar. Well, bef- in Walter's day, which began around 1918 at the hotel when he first came to New Orleans, um, you know, 1918. Kind of get your head around that. But when he first started at the Monteleon, the, the tradition in hotels, and I know, I know this from my, uh, Fairmont Roosevelt days, you had a bar in the lobby and you very cleverly named it the lobby bar. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, don't you love the creativity? Um, it's so pra- it's practical, right? I mean, if you come in yeah, a little exactly. bit drunk off the street and you need to meet somebody for a drink, where's the bar? The lobby bar. Yeah, excuse me, where's your lobby bar? Uh, right over there. But um because when I started at the Fairmont, we had a lobby bar. I don't know what it was called or had certainly I don't know what it's called now, but um but many hotels in those days did. So Walter worked every day in the lobby bar, um, serving hotel guests who wanted a drink. Um, there's evidence that in in there, as in the Sazerac bar and other hotel bars that locals were a regular presence as well, that that whether it was locals doing business with people who were staying at the hotel or just locals, I mean, people who were meeting other locals, that there was that there. And and so um, Walter, to his, you know, dis- not disappointment, but when he started at the hotel in 1918, he had two years or less, actually, to work there before, whoops, 
yep. prohibition. Yep. And and so I like to think of the Vucare, by the way, the cocktail, not the neighborhood. I think of it as a pre-prohibition cocktail. There's no evidence that he created it before prohibition. But I think that kind of booze, booze, and oh, yeah, let's add some more booze. The style of the cocktail, like a Sazerac and like a Manhattan and like a lot of those drinks, um, you know, came long before or, or at least before prohibition. So he lost his job when the bar closed at the Monoleon in 1920 at the start of prohibition. And then he spent years doing different things, including uh, running a cigar shop. And um, we certainly believe that there was illegal booze served at at a at a cigar shop in the French. Well, actually, it was on this in the CBD. We now call it on Barone Street. Right. Um, and he was actually arrested. There's no evidence that the charges were pressed or that he was ever convicted or acquitted. But he was uh, he was charged with possessing a gambling device. And and that brings me to one of the more important parts of his life, because if you think gambling, you have to think of Cajun country. And Walter is not was not from New Orleans. He was from Thibodeau Mm -hmm. down on Bayou Lafourche or Lafourche, you know, but I think most people. (laughs) It was like Bergeron or Bajeron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Potato. But um, but he was he grew up there. And by what record, not records, by by what anecdotes we have, um, both of his parents were 13 years old when he was born. What? (laughs) They were 13 and which is too young to drink and too young to gamble and too young to smoke cigars, except that they may have done all those things. So when it came time to look for a job, I think it would be normal in many parts of the country to look for the nearest big city, which was New Orleans, because, you know, whatever else's opportunities down there. I mean, he didn't want to be a a shrimper or whatever, you know, going out on the shrimp boats on Bayou Lafourche. So he came to New Orleans. So Thibodeau guy, which I hear in the name Bergeron anyway. I mean, most of the people in New Orleans I grew up with named Bergeron, not a million of them, but, you know, I knew some all had roots in in on that road to Grand Isle, you know, whatever right, turns right. up between Homa, Thibodeau, Golden Meadow. Um, um, can't think of the other places, but but that's where he was from. Um, so prohibition ends. Well, and, and John, and, let me let me say one thing yes. here, too, because in, in, right. you mentioned that he, you know, went to work after leaving the hotel, went to work at a cigar shop in what we now mm-hmm. call the CBD, as you noted. And I think most listeners, at least around here, know this, that, you know, if there was any place in the country that largely ignored, I'll use that word, prohibition, Mm -hmm. it was New Orleans. So it is certainly not a stretch of logic to assume that somebody who worked in alcohol before prohibition continued to find ways to work with alcohol during prohibition. So so like his cigar, it is not shocking to think or, you know, suspect. I'm shocked, I say. Yeah, <laughs> not suspect that he was had some sort of ties to alcohol at the cigar shop because mm-hmm. it's, this isn't a singular thing. There were plenty of places that were doing perhaps the same thing around town. That's what I'm picturing. And, you know, that, that the cigar shop sounds, and again, not a lot of real hard, fast facts, but sure. it sounds like the kind of place that the gentleman would go and smoke cigars, not like 
uh, I mean, they surely had a retail aspect, but I have, I don't picture guys going in there and saying, I'll have two of those, three of those, you know, wrap it up, Sam, and then leaving. I believe they did it there. And so you already have a kind of barroom atmosphere right. when, when you have a bunch of, you know, 1930s New Orleans men, um, sitting around talking at each other. Right. So, um, so, so that he was, he was ready. And when prohibition ended in 1933, um, it was pretty easy for him to convince the Monteleon family, uh, Antonio, we'll talk about him, but the original Mr. Monteleon, his first name was pretty much Mr., I think. Uh, the original Antonio had passed away a couple of decades earlier, but the family still owned it in in 1933 and indeed still owns it now i mean it's one of that it's very rare in america to find a family-owned hotel particularly one that's so big and luxurious and has been through so many really you know multi-million dollar renovations you know it's not some motel on you know chef mentor you know exactly (laughs) so 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 he was back and my favorite story about when he came back, and that this would be the period when he um, created the View Carré with his own sense of what, you know, I don't know whether a guest asked him for something because people do that. But the story that I like so much is that um, one day in the 1930s, uh, Walter brought his son to work. And and so Walter's getting there, you know, getting the bar set up for the day and all, all of that stuff that bartenders have to do, side work, you know, type thing. And his son, you know, spots a kid out in the middle of the floor playing with a big, shiny red fire truck like a Tonka. Uh, you know, I'm a boy. I know Tonka trucks. Sure, right, there you go. And um, and so 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 Walter's son waits and waits. And finally, the kid playing with the truck kind of runs off. And so the son goes over, he's like, you know, eight years old, and he starts playing with the truck. And at that point, Walter, when he's not totally focused on what he's doing, he looks up and sort of says, oh, geez, you know, hey, hey, Kleber, I think was the kid's name, or Klebert, I don't know how they said that one either. But, um, you know, get away from that truck, don't touch that truck. Well, it turned out that that was a Monteleone kid's truck. And and it's just interesting to me that for a guy who ended up working at a place for decades, the thought that his kid might get caught sort of touching the the kid, the the son, the, you know, the the successors to be truck so scared him that it's the kid never forgot. I mean, the kid grew up and died his, you know, eventually of old age, the son. But he never forgot how his father's worried look that you better not touch that. Right. So, so, so it was a, it was a very human thing. I mean, well, of course, humans work in bars, humans make cocktails and, and humans are afraid of things. They're afraid of losing their jobs most of all or most often. So, so Walter was this really trying to sum up, but I mean, he was a really unknown, unprepossessing, very un-PR kind of guy. He, he didn't try to promote himself, um, or his, even his drink. You know, his family didn't know he created the drink. That, that's a, that, um, that part of the story is amazing to me. And I, mm-hmm. I think, and we, we've, you've done a really good job painting the picture. And I mean, there's obviously a lot more depth in the book, but painting a picture about like, this isn't somebody that we've talked about who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
earlier Dale DeGroff or a Jerry Thomas right. or or anybody mm-hmm. like that that you know this this guy is known for the Vucare and then much beyond that we don't know a lot about him and I, I think that's really fascinating and especially even when we consider that you know he's making we're not talking about some drink being made in the 19th century we're talking about a drink being made you know approaching the mid part of the 20th century and mm-hmm. I find that really, right. really fascinating. Um, cool. l- let's do this, uh, John. Uh, is there anything in the next couple minutes? Do we want to add anything to the Monteleone family before we take our first break here in about two, three um, minutes? Well, it's up to you, but yeah, I would like to talk about them pretty much. So, so if you want to take a break before, during, or after, yeah, let's go ahead. Let's, let's go. Let's go ahead and do that now, and then because I want to come back, we're going to spend more time on the drink. Why don't you just yeah, give us like a three, four minute version of what you want to cover with the Monteleones? And look. What we want to also make sure is we want people to read the book. So, you know, oh, yeah. there's going to be a lot more going I, on I, in the book. I'm bad about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, so so like I said, one of the things that attracted me to this project was the people. And so we had Walter Bergeron, the mystery man. And then we had this wonderful New Orleans character uh, named Antonio Monteleone from Contessa Intellina, which is a village in Sicily. Um, the stuff we can say about that one, it was a very odd village and that the people, even though his name that we know him by is totally Italian and at very least Sicilian, but that village was known as a place where Albanians had migrated or immigrated over the centuries. So, so it's a part, I remember talking about that with Peggy Scott Laborde, who basically knows everything. And, and she knew about this whole Albanian story. It's like, oh my God. Um, so he's from a place that has a strange sort of maybe it had been wiped out by the time of his birth, not the village, but the Albanian aspect. I mean, it was generally Eastern Orthodox as opposed to Catholic. We are quite certain the Monteleones are Catholic by now. Right. But, um, but so he's from there. The first thing I love about Antonio is that um, he was either before coming to New Orleans and indeed connecting to some of his things in New Orleans – he was either a cobbler or or nobility, like a count. So it's kind of like, okay, typically you don't find those job descriptions on the same person. So it's so like I'm count we're, cobbler. We're gonna say a rich shoe guy. How's that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I make shoes and yeah, I rule. And the I have roots, some money. <laughs> yeah. And so so when when you know Antonio came to New Orleans, he didn't necessarily get a gig as a count, because I guess Count Arnaud at Arnaud's already had that title and he wasn't a count either. But um it's, again it's and a again, small town, there's not room for too many titles, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Especially when you know everybody's making them up anyway. <laughs> right. But um but he did open a shoes a shoe shop, either and it's again the record says it was either a shoe shop or a shoe factory. So suddenly, you know, depending on what the what it really was, the idea of some affluence, which he must have had to even get into the hotel business, not with today's Montleon Hotel, but even to get into it, you know, it wasn't like a hand to mouth existence. So um so I would I, I have tried and tried. I have not, you know, talked to all the usual suspects at the historic New Orleans collection and on and on. But so he was kind of a cobbler even in New Orleans. But he, like many of our immigrants that we think of as being important to the history and the the construction of the French Quarter as a place eventually for tourism, 
um, he he had a, a dream. He had an ambition. He had a thought that, you know, I can make these shoes and do okay. I can put, you know, pasta on the table. But if I want to do something better, I want a hotel. So so the story of the, the Monteleon is, you know, beginning in 1886, um, he started building and buying little buildings. So the hotel was, you know, I don't even know. I don't remember how many rooms, but it might have been like 2020 or something like that. And then he would add on and buy more buildings. And so eventually he had put together those buildings. Again, my second book was about Arno. So I think in those terms a lot. Mm-hmm. Count Arno also bought buildings that didn't connect and then would build hallways and different levels and steps and, and ramps. And before it was cool to have a ramp, um, you know, he, that's just how it was done when you have an, a pre-existing old neighborhood. Well, and then so, so, so pretty soon then the Monteleone is basically that block on Royal Street. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So so, you know, the lobby bar we talked about. And then after World War II, one of the Monteleon sons um, was out in, I believe it was San Francisco, and saw a bar that turned. And 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 he, he basically he said, "We need one of those." So they, they built the uh, the Carousel Bar, which you know officially has twenty five stools and two thousand ball bearings. Um, it has a very small motor because the idea is not to fling you out through a window, especially if you're drinking, um, but to just you kind of don't notice it moving exactly until you check where you are. Um, <laughs> so that became the home of of Walter Bergeron was dead. Count or, or you know, Count in a way. Uh, Monteleon was dead. I mean, a lot of the original factors had gone away, but but. Suddenly, the Monteleon had one of the most famous bars in New Orleans. Excellent. Let's do this, John. Let's go ahead and take our first break here, and then we're going to kind of come. We're going to come back and talk more specifically about the cocktail itself. And you know, and obviously, and this will connect to how its home is the Carousel Bar at the Monteleon. And we'll give a shout out to our good friend uh, Marvin Allen there, who might be uh, catching. Absolutely. Show. Thanks, yeah. Marvin. <laughs> there we go, friends. A brief little break here, and I'll be right back with John. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Brian Diaz here with you. Thanks for joining me on the NOLA Drink Show, friends. Happy to be chatting with John Demers, author of the fine book on the Vu Carré. As you know, it's part of the iconic New Orleans collection, or excuse me, iconic New Orleans cocktails collection, I should say, which is put out by LSU Press. Uh, so, John, we left things off. We kind of gave a good background on who Walter Bergeron was, the inventor of the drink, the setting of the drink being the Hotel Monteleone. We talked about the Carousel Bar, which people may know uh, if they've been obviously if they've been to the hotel they know and mm-hmm. noted that that you know came after the drink but it certainly found a home there we mentioned our friend Marvin Allen who I am sure has made probably a million vucarets I, I can't remember I've certainly had Marvin make me a vucare I don't remember if that was the first one I ever had but I've certainly had one at the carousel bar uh, 
And, you know, with Walter's creation of the drink, and I think we, we've noted that the sort of existence of all of this was hazy. Um, and you note in the book, uh, and I want people to read the book so you can get more there. But, you know, the drink is inspired by a collection of ingredients that represent a lot of the crossroads that is New Orleans. And we'll maybe touch on those real quickly uh, from there. And I think there's always a balance, and you note this in the book too. There's a reality, and we're talking a post-prohibition world, presumably, but there's a reality too of just availability of ingredients. And we've talked a lot about, for example, phylloxera on this show. We've talked quite a bit about prohibition on this show. We've talked about how rye came to supplant cognac and a lot of cocktails uh, on this show. So I don't think we need to go too far down the road of any of those, but let's, um, let's just talk about, let's, let's use the build of the drink that you have in your book and just rattle that off real quick. And then let's just kind of talk about those ingredients briefly. I'm not good at rattling off quick. No, I, of I course can do I, it. <laughs> I will. Um, well, and, and, and Brian, do you want me to talk about each, the reason each is there or just what's there? Well, let, let's, let's do this. Let, let, here, I'll just read off the build and then let's go back. Okay. We'll go back sure. and just kind of like why, why, why quickly, like why each one is there. So the book, mm-hmm. we'll talk about this after too, because there are some variations on the build, but the build that you have in the book is definitely an accepted standard way to make the drink. Of course, one ounce of rye whiskey, one ounce of cognac, one ounce of sweet vermouth, quarter ounce of Benedictine, two dashes of Peixos bitters, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and a lemon peel for garnish. Now that sounds like a nice balanced drink, kind of an interesting drink. And there's a couple strange bedfellows going on in there, but uh, let's, let's start with the rye and let's, let's use the angle of why let's not necessarily talk too much about the history of all these. Cause I mentioned we've touched on these. Let's talk okay. about why presumably, and some of this is a bit, you know, supposition, but why Walter would have chosen the rye and then each of these ingredients, you know, meaning the cultural angle from which it came. Well, sure. Well, according to, you know, a a writer back in the thirties named Arthur Clisby, um, who is kind of famous for, for the, his book, New New Orleans drinks and how to fix them. I think, or make them, how to mix them. I think. Yep. Mix. I think so. And, um, definitely, um, Mm -hmm. uh, mix them. But, uh, but, what Walter was going for, and, and you alluded to this, Brian, but what Walter Bergeron was trying to do is uh, kind of portray the ethnicities and the con- contributions of many cultures that that made New Orleans New Orleans. And so um, Clisby is not famous for being 100 percent accurate about things, but that's the story. You know, that's his story and he's sticking to it. Um, We've already established the New Orleans track record for such things. It makes (laughs) a certain kind of sense. Well, it totally works. So whether whether it's totally accurate, it totally works. So so one of the I mean, Walter Bergeron grew up in the United States, in America. And and so either before or after in his mind, he talked before he really got around to the roots of of different ingredients and the influences, particularly in the French Quarter, which, of course, was French for many, many years. Um, he talked he, he included rye whiskey and I, and you may know more about rye than I do. But what I do know is that rye was one of kind of the original uh, American whiskey whiskeys. I mean, even before I mean, I'm a bourbon drinker and all that kind of good stuff. But uh, but rye kind of defined American alcohol in most of this country. Um, the whiskey rebellion. Now, how clear can it be? The, a rebellion called the Whiskey Rebellion, which was kind of put down by George Washington, 
Um, that fight between the makers of this whiskey and the federal government trying to control and da 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 and tax, um, that rebellion was all over rye whiskey. And it wasn't over bourbon. It wasn't over scotch. It wasn't over vodka. It was over rye. So, so I think that when Walter was kind of a fancying making a cocktail of his own that then could be something he made for his special guests and eventually for everybody, he wanted to represent America. Oh, definitely not tequila either. But, uh, and so by choosing rye, he chose the American spirit. Okay. I, I'm quite certain that's what Walter thought when he did it. That that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yet you go into good detail about the Whiskey Rebellion and some of the ironies with it and so on and so forth. So ch- do check out the book, friends, there. Let's move on to Cognac. This is kind of an obvious one also. <clears throat> well, it is. And, and to me, at least, Cognac and Benedictine go together in this drink because they're both from France. And, and so how would you, how would you paint a portrait of New Orleans as a cultural destination and a historical thing? How would you do that and not have France? So, so cognac, of course, and is, is the brandy of cognac, the region in France. So a lot of parts of the world make, make brandy, but only the people of cognac are allowed to say, Hey, you want some cognac? And and so so it has that French fascination or fetish for naming um, and for protecting right. and for protecting. legalizing, <laughs> right. you know, so 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 that particular brandy was was, a you know, having a brandy, particularly a cognac, because it comes in even today. But even then, too, it comes in many price ranges. It, you know, when people think of, you know, Louis Trez, Louis the 13th or some of these, you know, incredibly fancy, expensive um, cognacs, they know they need to know that it ain't always that way. Right. I mean, you you can get cheap cognac and everywhere in between. Yep. So Walter wanted that. And he also liked the sweetness element of of a liqueur, that's how I say it, um, uh, known as Benedictine, which has a a colorful story. Uh, there was a guy named Legrand, which, you know, if you're going to be French, you know, call yourself Legrand, um, <laughs> who who insisted that he had found this recipe, like the 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 how to make Benedictine from Benedictine monks, of course. Um, that had been buried long ago from by some monk in the ground, and he uncovered that recipe or found it or was given it, and because um, he's another guy, Mister Tall Tales, <laughs> but but he, he he so he created the recipe of Benedictine and or found it buried in the ground. So those two things together not only end up tasting really good, but um, but they are the French connection, literally and figuratively, in the Vucare cocktail. Okay, great. That makes a lot of sense. And again, I'll urge listeners to pick up the book because you you tell a lot more of the tale of, of Benedictine. It's not a stretch where Benedictine comes from, even if he didn't find the recipe in the ground. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, so <laughs> let, let's move on to, because this is also an interesting part of the drink. We have both Peixos and Angostura bitters in there. Can we can we do vermouth first and then have oh, a Of course, yeah, let's do vermouth it. first. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah skip of the vermouth. course, yeah. vermouth is primarily from Italy. And and um, I is, as far as I'm concerned, Walter knows where his bread was buttered. And so the Monteleon family, I'm sure, was totally happy you know, to have their homeland. Uh, they are, were originally from Sicily and 
as late as their lifetimes, the regions of Italy were, I mean, you were first and foremost a Sicilian or a Tuscan or a Venetian or a Roman. You were only secondarily an Italian. And and so that, you know, vermouth came. But by then, by, you know, Italy had been uh, unified by Garibaldi. And um, and so at the very least, you know, it represented it wasn't, say, Marsala, which is very specific and only from Sicily. Vermouth is from Italy. But Walter did his job. You know, he said, we want something Italian and they're typically I use sweet vermouth. There are usually sweet and dry vermouths and on the marketplace. And uh, but I, I like what happens with sweet vermouth. And that's what the original recipe calls for. So there you have it. You have rye whiskey from America, vermouth from Italy, uh, cognac and Benedictine from France. Uh, Walter apparently didn't know about the Spanish period, but you know we'll we'll let him ride on that. Yeah, and, and, we, the, and we and let alone the German. But I mean, then then we're starting to get a crazy we're starting to get a crazy drink that's going to lack balance at that point. Maybe. Right, <laughs> exactly. And and then of course nothing makes this more more New Orleans in some ways than than the bitters. And and you know I had never really before this project I had never really thought of of a drink that had two different kinds of bitters. I, I just figured well I probably figured bitters is bitters, and and one would do the job, but not for Walter Bergeron. And so um, the things that were in his bar um, were Angostura, which is I'm guessing the largest, most popular, most oh, what's the word familiar, most established bitters, and I, I think it stays plural like that in the world. Um, a doctor, a military doctor, kind of stumbled on it. So many, I mean, if you really gathered all the booze stories in the world, you'd end up with so many things that started out as medicine, and 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 then eventually they became what we could call pleasure and taste. And so Angostura, during a, a battle against Simon Bolivar, or I think maybe with him on his side yeah. to liberate yeah. Venezuela, yeah. Um, this doctor created this as a medicine in the field of battle with wounded. And eventually he moved to Trinidad, uh, the doctor, and his family still runs uh, Angostura bitters today. His, you know, I'm sure they're very distant by that point, relative wise. But but so so Angostura comes from Trinidad, but again, was very popular. I like to think that Walter also um, understood the importance of the Caribbean to the growth of New Orleans. And and that comes up in our second bitters more directly for, you know, to New Orleans. And that was Peixot's bitters. So 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 there's this bitters from Trinidad. And then there's a second dose of bitters from what I like to say is down the street um, from Antoine Peychaud. Um Peychaud was his family and him, he himself were when we we don't know a hell of a lot about him. But but he was from San Domingue, Santo Domingo, meaning Haiti. And then in with the 1789 upheaval that was so important in New Orleans that drove both white and black escapees, uh, refugees, really. I mean, some of them rich, some of them poor. Uh, New Orleans' population more than doubled, we're told, when the bloodshed in Haiti happened. And so Antoine Peixot and his family were part of that exodus. 
and they came to New Orleans. Pecho, you know, speaking of medicine, uh, opened his first place as a as a pharmacy. It is that original pharmacy on Royal Street that you can visit and all that good stuff. Um, but very quickly, this is the best we can tell, it sort of started looking more like a bar, you know, like like Bergeron's cigar shop would have gentlemen sitting around smoking cigars, drinking cognac and whiskey. Um, I mean, so was the pharmacy. Unlike CVS or Walgreens today, it doesn't probably have a bar along the wall. Couldn't, couldn't stop, and, st- you know, stop into a CVS for a little nip in the morning before you go to work. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so these bitters, the, the Pecho bitters particularly are used in several cocktails, including like the plot thickens and the plot interweaves. Uh, the original Sazerac had some element of that. And now Peixos, I guess for lack of relatives, unlike Angostura, um, is owned by the Sazerac company in New Orleans. So, so, you know, corporate America and, and, and they, they've really done a good job, I think, of, of sticking to the history of promoting the legendary status of Peixos bitters as part of New Orleans. I mean, when I was coming up as a food writer, 40 years ago, um, we were taught that the word cocktail itself is from coquetier or egg cup, thanks to the pharmacy run by Antoine Peychaud. Now, most historians don't think that was the case. It may well have happened like that, but but there were references to cocktails elsewhere earlier. That's what we're told. I'm, I'm not totally ready to abandon the cool New Orleans story. I'm, though. I'm always when it, when this conversation comes up, John. I'm always going to defer to my friend, uh, friend Dave Wondrich on this one. So uh, you know, because what's Dave, Dave saying? Dave, well, Dave pushes it back a little bit further. It might even push it back to the late eight, very last couple years of the uh, 18th century. And uh-huh. he's got some interesting, interesting theories on that. But it definitely, one way or another, the word, as you noted, the word appears in a publication or two prior to to the Coquetier thing. Yeah, which is still a cool story. And like the Emperor Napoleon well, living at the Napoleon yeah, house, yeah, you know, you, you know, kind of hate to lose the cool story. And, and you know, it's, it's also, and, and I don't want to get too far off track here, but it's also not a stretch mm-hmm. to me to think like if you have somebody who doesn't speak the language, they maybe encounter the term somewhere else make a false equivalence between the two, how, how slang kind of morphs together, words can come together. This is not a stretch of, of the imagination or logic to think that there could be various vectors for the word that just kind of formed into the word cocktail that just made sense from different angles. Well, and and my favorite, which is really getting off the subject, so I'll make it quick, but uh, Mr. the original Mr. Marini um, created a squat down and throw dice game for all of his friends to play. And he called it Le Crapaud, the frogs, mm-hmm. because people were <laughs> squatting down. And it didn't take the uh, Americans very long to say, oh, we're shooting craps. Right. It's, it, right. It, you know? right. So Le Crapaud, you know, we're doing the frog game, basically. So you're right. You know, it words language works that way. And and it works as much that way in cocktails as in uh, dice games. Absolutely. And I do want to note this really quick, too, because we, we talk about how we have these different uh, representations that the ingredients present to the drink. And I think, you know, whether it's probably not intentional of the, with the case of Walter Bergeron, but when we talk about the Pecho story in particular with Angostura, but really also Haiti, maybe this is in a backhanded way, but it's also bringing the uh, African experience to the drink. And I think that's really important to note as well. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I, yeah, 
I, I think that, and we're not limited, thank God, we're not limited in our knowledge and thoughts and feelings by what people thought and felt in 1933 or 1879 or any other. I mean, you know, American history requires us to kind of be progressive in our own way and to say that, you know, that that revolt, which which has some important historical things in Haiti to the world, um, you know, it was done using the American Declaration of Independence right. as a model. Um, but, but so, but that also changed and created New Orleans. I mean, if you somehow could surgically remove that revolt from New Orleans, from the bloodstream of New Orleans, we could be living in Cleveland. Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah, absolutely. So, I, so I, we think, you know, we thank these cultures for bringing their stuff and for, you know, as hard as it is while people are becoming Americans, as you know, while that's the goal of most immigrants, but we love it when they hang on to things that are of value to them, their foods, their drink, their music. God, think of that one. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Brian, that it's important to, to bring in the African and certainly Afro Caribbean, uh, element that is so important in the New Orleans. We all know, no other than. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, and the last thing that we have in the drink, too, is a lemon peel for garnish. But uh, that kind of speaks for itself, right? <laughs> it does. It's, it's mostly to look at. Um, but I, I like I like citrus garnishes. And personally, you know, I'm not a bartender, but I like them when they bring a little bit of flavor to the liquid itself. I mean, the the, the lemon aspect. I mean, so sure, it's a garnish. But I like a little, what should we say, pop of lemon, lemon citrus makes flavor pop in food, especially yeah. Yeah. acidity so, is important in a drink, right? Okay. And and so you know, I love Negronis, and a lot of bartenders do that with an orange peel, and and I adore when I taste a Negroni and it has this memory of orange. Great, mm -hmm. so it's it's really great. So th thank you for doing that. We kind of just you know quickly went through the build. So let me ask you a couple. Particular questions. I promised you two hard hitting questions, and I'm going to ask oh, you. I, I thought second. those were them. Uh, th okay. th those are all easy questions, John. You, okay. you did the research on the book and you wrote about it. So, I mean, you got uh -huh. that. Um, we've talked about this a lot on the show, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. So, my second hard hitting question is with the Vucure cocktail, Up or on the Rocks? Oh, I, I, I think it's on the rocks. Most of the recipes that I've seen are on the rocks. Yep. Now, Plus, it's damn, it's damned hot outside. Okay, those are those are all perfectly acceptable. I, I'm 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 of the minds that there is no right or wrong answer oh, to this. Oh God, yes. I and, mean, and I mean, because mo mostly I cook, and people are always saying you can't do this, you can't do that, and my answer as a cook is always watch me. Yeah, absolutely. You know? a look, a and I feel the same way about this kind of issue. Yeah, and I the reason why I ask this question in particular, and and, and I come from the camp of I prefer the drink up. And the reason why I okay. prefer the drink up is because I don't like how the dilution of the drink changes in ice over time. It does do that. It does do that. And and I think it's one of those things, too, where we talk about, and this is a question I'm going to ask you here in just a second. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a question sometimes there are certain drinks that we go back and look at, especially pre-prohibition cocktails, and they're not good. And somebody has come along and made a better version of it, and that's okay. So maybe that falls into this camp. Maybe that doesn't. But, um, you know, and the reason why I bring it up, too, is a, you may know Paul Gustings. Paul is a very good friend of mine and a longstanding bartender in New Orleans, and he is in the camp of Up. And he and I had a very interesting conversation years and years ago about it when he served me one. And we talked about why, and I kind of 
hence why I fall into that camp. But I have to wonder, and here's really the question too, um, you know, ice was a luxury and, you know, at the Monteleon in the hotel itself, actually having ice and some of these things, that was not even at that time, not necessarily a hundred percent commonplace. And so I almost kind of wonder every once in a while too, like, did the venue, I'm not saying coming from down on high saying you will put ice in the drink, but Mm -hmm. the fact that ice was seen as a luxury and it was available in that space, does that play a role in why it's in the drink? Yeah, well, my my answer, my hard hitting answer is I don't know, but but, <laughs> but it's certainly there is an ele- there is an element of showing off that we see in drinks and in dishes, famous dishes. If it's hard to get, if there's only one of these eggs or birds or whatever, um, it's amazing how that for for some people creates a great a greater desirability. And I mean, I still think when I think of ice, I still think cold. You know, and yeah. and for that, I think I heartily. But you're right that that I mean, I, I there's there's history of ice, and I think it was the late 1800s that Apalachicola, Florida, played a role in the process of how to make ice, and that, because you know, other than having the winter time freeze your your river, um, and which wouldn't have happened in New Orleans very often at all. But but there was no commercial way to make ice and have an ice house and not a nice house, but an ice house. So so that's a really interesting point. I wouldn't doubt it at all. I mean, think of all the the movie, the movie houses, the movie theaters with the old photographs from the 20s, 30s, 40s. And what do they all say on their signs? Refrigerated air. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. People went to the movies, especially late at night, to let it cool down enough they could sleep because they didn't have air conditioning. Right. So, you know, here's so another. I, go ahead. Yeah. Oh. No, I was just going to say ice fits into that very nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here's another one I have for you too, because I'm getting to thinking about the drink, and we've noted that this is a post-prohibition cocktail. Now, whether Walter was working on it in some fashion or another prior to that, we don't mm-hmm. know. We simply know that it came out after prohibition. And I find that, you know, when you look at the fact that that it's a split-based cocktail, um, and we can argue about how the role that vermouth plays, whether it's a modifier or not, even though it's an equal proportion, but we do have rye mm-hmm. and we do have cognac. And I think with most pre-prohibition cocktails, we're kind of seeing one or the other. We don't need to get into the story about how uh, rye supplanted cognac in, in the drinks that were typically found in New Orleans and elsewhere in the States. But to me, that kind of screams post-prohibition cocktail because of the fact that you have these two ingredients that would normally be one replaced for the other. And I find that a really interesting part of the drink too, uh, especially that early on after prohibition. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. And and from the guy who brought us two different bitters, you know, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, he thought, he thought in twos. Um, and, and, so, I mean, I think I think at some point he had a eureka moment, you know, where he put this together and whether he had it as a, hey, hey, Jim, let me make you a special drink. Or whether Jim said, what about something with blankety, blankety, blank? We don't know. Right. We barely know when the guy was born, you know, much right. less, Absolutely. Uh, much less what he was thinking. But that said, you know, I can I can I can see that it caught on. I mean, that's always the ultimate turning point in any story is when people like it and and so i it's pretty clear from from the story as we know it that for the rest of his life uh, i think he died in the 1940s um you know for the rest of his life walter bergeron was was kicking out lots and lots of bucare absolutely and look and i think a split base is a really nice thing oftentimes when people uh if i you know 
will order a Sazerac, they'll say, you know, do you want rye or do you want cognac? And I'll just say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, and this is a side story, but I went to a bar that a, f- a friend of mine runs in Madrid recently in April called the 1862 Dry Bar, Great Bar, go if you're there. And they do a Sazerac and they serve it with a split base of rye and cognac on their list. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 I just find this really, you know, uncovering the history of the drink and talking about when it fell and then kind of how I think it's had an influence moving forward is really important. This is the last one I'm going to ask you about the the drink in particular. Uh, This is something I'm an evangelist for, John, on this show. Uh, We like to throw around vermouth as an ingredient in a drink. And um, we, you note this in the book very well, which I was uh, very appreciative of. There is a big world of vermouth out there. There is a growing world of vermouth out there. And damn it, vermouth is not an afterthought in a drink. And so the world of even sweet vermouths is so varied. I always urge people to think about the vermouth that you use, especially these days, because they bring so many different flavors. And you mentioned that it alters the drink greatly. I think kind of, I'll use the term crappy sweet vermouth. You can have all these great ingredients like in a Vucare, and some of these aren't cheap ingredients, right? And then if you use a really cheap sweet vermouth, I think you've really ruined the drink. I don't know how you feel about that, but I just think we kind of gloss over vermouth as an ingredient so often, and it's got to be a careful selection if you're trying to make a good beverage. Right. Well, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, using quality things in general is, is, is important. And, and, you know, it also is noteworthy to me that one of the things that jumped out at me when I first looked at the, the standard, you know, so-called classic recipe is the, the one ounce, one ounce, one ounce that the, you know, vermouth is not an afterthought in terms of its, its uh, ratio. Absolutely. And, and so that if, if you're going to do that, if then, then I think you owe it to yourself to do one of two things as a food guy, either use really good vermouth or change the question a little and use the vermouth you like. Um, it may at that point be expensive or not expensive, but, but use, because it's going to have, you know, it's going to have an impact. It's going to have a, a flavor presence on your taste buds. So why not like it? Absolutely. And that's really the most important thing. I just, you know, I always talk to younger bartenders and other folks in town when you're making this drink. And then now with the world of vermouth that's available at your fingertips, I just say, don't give it short shrift and make sure you give that the due respect that every ingredient plays in a drink. Um, yeah, it was, it was really cool to when I was working on this book to find out because that there were so many um, <clears throat> so many different books written about individual spirits. And, you know, like one of the books I consulted was called Vermouth, the Revival of the Spirit that Created America's Cocktail Culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty big phrase or a pretty big boast, if you will. You know, created America's cocktail culture. So at least in somebody's mind, you know, the cocktail culture we are in, which is both both wonderful. And to me, I'm kind of a classic guy. I like older foods. I like older drinks. I'm kind of older myself. Um, so I don't, I don't want like herbs or fireworks or, 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 you know, Lord knows what sticking out of the top of my cocktail. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. Um, but, um, but I think, I think vermouth is one of those connectors to even as it's gotten better and is able to be hip. Um, it's also something that, that speaks to the old world as well and connects us because, you know, I think cocktails are essentially an old world thing. You know, the new guys can new them up any way they want. 
but I like to sit at a bar like the the Carousel Bar or the Sazerac Bar at the Roosevelt or <laughs> let's face it, a lot of bars. Um, I like to feel that I'm part of something timeless. Um, and to me, a cocktail does that so well. You just feel like you're, you know, you could be Nick and Nora Charles in the 1930s or you could be, you know, uh, Sam Adams at a tavern across from from Philadelphia Independence Hall. I mean, the taste of what you get is such an uh, I mean, and it is enjoyed around the world, but it also is a particularly American kind of idea. Right. And I like that about cocktails. Absolutely. I share that with you. I'm going to ask you one bonus hard-hitting question, John. Okay. Only because I found this really um, interesting, almost kind of amusing. So um, in the book, you're talking about the Carousel Bar, and mm-hmm. you're talking about noted patrons of the Monteleone really kind of before the Carousel Bar. So, you know, of course, authors that we know like Faulkner and Tennessee Williams and Capote and Hemingway. Hemingway, folks that were running around New Orleans, we know that. And then this other part of the list that was a little more modern where you said um, other notable uh, patrons have included Michael Jordan, Dennis Quaid, Greg Allman, and Sally Struthers. And I was thinking about what an interesting list that was. And Sally Struthers was kind of the uh, the lemon peel, if you will, the garnish on that list. But she's not. My, she doesn't rate rate with Michael Jordan. Well, I mean, I love all in the family. Don't no, get me wrong. And, and, but and I, I found I found this list presumably via the hotel, okay. and it's in various and 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 I too said what. <laughs> who? Not who, because I knew very well who Sally Struthers is sure. and who played on All in the Family. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it still was kind of like you know uh, Robert Oppenheimer, Albert Einstein, Enrico Fermi, and Sally Struthers. I mean, it's like. It just uh, one of these items doesn't fit. Yeah, that, and there you have it. Maybe, Sorry, we Sally. could argue maybe Dennis Quaid kind of. But I mean, you know, I, I I saw the Allman Brothers a whole bunch growing up and stuff, so that one fits for me. And you know, I love basketball, so Jordan and all that. I just thought that was a great list. So, uh, yeah. but, John, do me a favor because we got to close things out. Tell people mm-hmm. where we can connect with you, and tell people where we can find the fine book. Okay, so the book is called The View Correct. So it has the same name, you might say, as the neighborhood that we know as the, the French Quarter and all of that. But the View Carré, uh, it's available via, uh, let's see, LSU, the, the LSU Press website, which is lsupress.org. And then it's certainly available on Amazon.com. Awesome. Um, hopefully you mentioned a place that, that, that sells it, but hopefully shit. around yeah. New Orleans, there's yeah. a lot of places that sell it. They yeah. should. They should. Absolutely. They should. I agree with that entirely. It's a gift shop at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, friends. Uh, you, you hear me talk about that a lot. John, thank you so much uh, for making time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, let's go get a Vucare the next time you're down this way. That would be great. Thanks, Brian, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John, very much. Friends, a brief musical interlude, and I'll be back to close things out. All right, everybody. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with John. I sure did. It was a lot of fun talking to him, talking about the Vucare cocktail. Yeah, and as we joked about hard-hitting questions here on the NOLA Drink Show, Up or on the Rocks, I think you know where I stand. We've talked about it quite a bit on the program, but we can debate that at another time, or you can just yell at me the next time you see me in a bar, which is not too hard to do if you're in and around New Orleans. Uh, do go check out the show notes. I mentioned this at the top of the show, uh, that you can 
Check out two other shows that we did featuring authors and books from this series, Iconic New Orleans Cocktails by LSU Press, The Absinthe Frappe by Mary Sanji, and The Cafe Brulo by Sue Strachan. Uh, if you go to the LSU Press website, it's lsupress.org. Very easy to find. You can search by series. Just look for Iconic New Orleans Cocktails, and you will find all the books in the series there. You can purchase them there, I believe. You can also, as we mentioned, uh, purchase the book in the gift shop at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and you can find it online at Amazon. And other fine booksellers will have it as well. I mentioned this also at the top of the show. We'll be back next time around talking about sake and talking a little bit about sushi with uh, Sean. Williams, a sake expert and a chef, Jackie Blanchard, who owns Sukeban Restaurant uh, in Uptown New Orleans, which is where we taped that show. And uh, we're working on bringing you a show again, like we did last year on Old Fashioned Week, benefiting the Southern Smoke Foundation, benefiting folks in the hospitality industry, friends. So that's the plan as I have it so far. Be on the lookout for our next show and the one after, and we'll be uh, we'll be doing more. You know, that's kind of what we do here on the Noel Drink Show. We've been at it for a little while, right? So there you go, friends. Hey, I really appreciate you joining me this time around. I want to remind you to be kind to one another. Use your turn signal. Remember to put your shopping cart up, and when you're supposed to, hit reply all. Until next time, cheers, y'all.